Today's sermon comes from Isaiah chapter 5, verses 1 through 7. Let me sing for my beloved, my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it out of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewed out a wine vat in it. And he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done to it in it? When I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? And now I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge and it shall be devoured. I will break down its wall and it shall be trampled down. I will make a waste. It shall not be pruned or hoed and briars and thorns shall grow up. I will also command the clouds that they rain, no rain upon it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel and the men of Judah are his pleasant planning. And he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed for righteousness, but behold, an outcry. There's two kinds of gifts that you can receive. There's gifts that make you comfortable, and there are gifts that change you. I want you to imagine that you have just finished your annual physical at the doctor's office, and after the blood work, it's revealed that you have high cholesterol. And so to your disappointment, the doctor tells you that you're gonna have to change your diet to lower your cholesterol. Several weeks later at uh, your birthday party, you're opening gifts. The first gift you open is a case of Milky Way candy bars. You're ecstatic. You love Milky Ways. What a gift. Then you open your second gift, and the second gift's a little bit different. The second gift you open is a book on lowering your cholesterol. Not so ecstatic about the second gift. Two gifts, two very different gifts. One designed to make you comfortable, one designed to change you. God's grace is a gift. It's a gift, but what kind of gift is God's grace? Is it intended to make you comfortable? Or is it intended to change you? Or is it both? Why does God extend his grace to you? To answer this question, we're going to explore grace. Grace extended, grace resisted, and grace received. First, grace extended. In verses 1 to 2 of Isaiah 5, Isaiah describes the grace 
that God lavished on his people using the imagery of a vineyard. So verse one, he says, my beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. God planted this vineyard in a place where it would flourish. Verse two, he dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He prepared the soil. He got rid of uh, anything that would inhibit growth. He planted good vines. Verse two, he built a watchtower in the midst of it, hewed out a wine vat in it, and he looked for it to yield grapes. This speaks to the confidence he had with this vineyard. I mean, he made his permanent residence there, confident, expectant that it would produce fruit, made a storage place for all the fruit that would be born out of it. When it says he looked for it to yield grapes, that he looked for is a, is, is a word that means expectancy. He looked expectantly for this vineyard to produce fruit. And so lavish was the grace poured out on this vineyard that the questions raised in verse four, what more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? Just a lavish, total picture of grace poured out for this vineyard to flourish. Ezekiel, another prophet in the scriptures, speaks very similarly about God's treatment of his people in Ezekiel chapter 16. He talks about how God has poured out his grace in amazing ways on his people. He uses the, the imagery of a parent nurturing a child to speak of how good God has been, had been to his people. In Ezekiel 16, 7, he says, I made you flourish like a plant of the field. And then when we get to the conclusion of Ezekiel's description of this lavish outpouring of grace, we read in verse 14, and your renown went forth among the nations because of your beauty, for it was perfect through the splendor that I had bestowed on you, declares the Lord God. Just a picture of God's amazing goodness and grace poured out on his people. The Lewis and Clark expedition in 1804 was the United States expedition to cross over the newly acquired portion of land through the Louisiana Pur Purchase. It was the whole western portion of the country. And so Meriwether Lewis, in his preparation for the journey west, met with the president, Thomas Jefferson, to talk about how they were going to make it from St. Louis up the Missouri River, across the Rocky Mountains, down the Columbia River, into California, and back. And what was so daunting about this journey is that Meriwether Lewis and his team would be a self-contained unit. And once they departed from St. Louis, they would be stuck with all the decisions they had made in the planning process. And there were a lot, a lot of decisions to be made, like... How many men would we need? With what skills? How big of a boat? The design of the boat? What type of rifle? How much powder? How much lead? 
How many cooking pots? How many tools? How much dry or salted rations could be carried? What medicines needed to be taken? In what quantity? What scientific instruments would they need? How many fishing hooks? How much salt? I mean, can you imagine having to make all these decisions for a journey across land that had never been crossed before? You can imagine the anxiety in the planning process to ensure that they could make this unknown and dangerous journey from St. Louis to the Pacific. God has provided everything you need for the journey to the new heavens and new earth. Not everything you want, but everything you need for the journey to new heavens and new earth. Everything from the stuff you have to the relationships that you have, to the circumstances in your life. That is all from God's hand. It's a gift of his grace for the journey. He has completely provided in his grace, but sometimes his grace takes on the form of sheer joy. Sometimes his grace takes on the form of gut-wrenching pain. But it's all of his grace. And 2 Peter 1.3 says it well. His divine power has given us everything we need. Everything. For a godly life. Through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. Out of sheer grace, meaning nothing you've earned or nothing you deserve, God has given you everything you need for the journey. Now, the question is why? For what purpose has He given you everything you need? Why does God extend His grace to you? Why does He extend grace? Why does he give you everything you need? Why did he extend grace to Israel, to his people, as Isaiah describes here in the Song of the Vineyard? Well, the answer or the reason is repeated twice in verses 2 and verses 4. That is to yield grapes, to bear fruit. God poured out his grace on his people to change them, to transform them. The journey from where you're at now to the new heavens and new earth is a journey of transformation. It's a journey of change. It's a journey of transformation. And God's grace is poured out and he gives you everything you need. Again, not necessarily what you want, but everything you need to transform you, to change you on the journey. Now, sadly, as we read in Isaiah 5, as God poured out this lavish grace on his people, they resisted it. They resisted it. They resisted change. They resisted transformation. 
And as they resisted it, we see here in Isaiah 5, actually the ways that they do resist it. And the ways that we see God's people resisting it are the same ways that we resist God's grace today. What you're gonna see in Isaiah 5 are, are, are five statements that begin with the phrase, woe to those. We're looking through the entire chapter of Isaiah 5. There's five statements, or six statements on woe to those. The word woe doesn't just denounce sin, but it laments sin. There's grief in it. And those six woe to those statements in Isaiah 5 describe the different ways that we resist God's grace. And as we resist his grace, we resist his change and we resist change in our own lives. So how do we resist God's grace? First way, verse eight. Woe to those who join house to house, who add field to field until there is no more room and you are made to dwell alone in the midst of the land. Instead of being content with what God has given you, you grasp for more. It's the disease of more, specifically here, house upon house, bigger house, better car, more stuff, just more, more, more. That's one way that we resist God's grace is the clamoring, the grasping for more. What's interesting is the connection that Isaiah makes here on the result of clamoring for more. He says, you dwell alone. That when we grasp for more and more, rather than being content with what God has given us, we end up in a place of isolation and loneliness. We end up alone. The second way we resist God's grace, verses 11 to 12. Woe to those who rise early in the morning, that they may run after strong drink, who tarry late into the evening as wine inflames them. They have lyre and harp, tambourine and flute and wine at their feast, but they do not regard the deeds of the Lord or see the work of his hands. Instead of receiving joy from the Lord, you seek pleasure outside of the Lord. Now, Isaiah dials in here or hones in on alcohol as a, as a form of seeking pleasure. But that's really just an example that paints a broader stroke of uh, seeking pleasure through the senses or sensual pleasure or sensual indulgence. And again, interesting the connection Isaiah makes here of the result of that. He says, those who tarry after strong drink, those who seek sensual pleasure or indulge in it, can't see the work of God. Sensual indulgence leads to a loss of spiritual perception. Now, when I say sensual indulgence, God has given us senses, and he's given us senses to enjoy his good creation. What Isaiah is speaking here is uh, inordinately seeking sensual pleasure, and that when you do, you quench the Holy Spirit, you lose spiritual perception. Third way that we resist God's grace, verses 18 and 19. Woe to those who draw iniquity with cords of falsehood, who draw sin as with cart ropes, who say, let him be quick, let him speed his work that we may see it. Let the counsel of the Holy One of Israel draw near and let it come that we may know it. Instead of believing God on what is true, you believe the lie of sin. And so you seek more and more of the sin 
with expectation that sin is going to deliver on what it promises, and it never, it never does. Sin never delivers, delivers on its promise. It, it's a lie which enslaves you and you go from cords to cart ropes. That's basically imagery that means you, you get deeper and deeper entwined in the sin and you can't get loose. And then in your slavery, you demand that God prove himself because right? you can't see his work. So you demand that he, he prove himself. Fourth way we resist God's grace Verse 20, woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Instead of repenting of sin, we rationalize sin. Instead of turning from it, we, uh, we redefine it so that we're okay with it. So the redefinition of sin. God extends his grace to change us. We resist his grace when we refuse to change, but instead change the rules so that we can resist change. We redefine, we rationalize sin. Fifth way we resist God's grace, verse 21. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and shrewd in their own sight. Instead of depending on God, we insist on autonomy and independence. We can do it our own way. We need our own wisdom and nothing else. Grace, the grace of God thrives when we feel the urgency of how we need to be saved from ourselves. That's when grace thrives. It doesn't thrive when we're in autonomy and independence. The sixth, final way we resist God's grace, verses 22 to 23. Woe to those who are heroes at drinking wine and valiant men in mixing strong drink, who acquit the guilty for a bribe and deprive the innocent of his right. Instead of disadvantaging self to advantage others, we turn that around. We advantage self to disadvantage others. We begin to measure success by the degree of self-satisfaction that we achieve. Or we begin to measure success by the degree of sensual indulgence that we attain to. That that becomes the measure of success. And then instead of God's grace coming through us to bless others, we reverse it and others become the means by which we are blessed. Right? That's how we resist God's grace. There's a program on BBC television called The Repair Shop. Uh, and it's really interesting. People, ordinary people like you and me, uh, bring their damaged, destroyed, uh, depleted family heirlooms to this team of unbelievable craftsmen, craftswomen, women that take these heirlooms and repair them. What's interesting is these people come and they share a story about the heirloom. The heirloom in and of itself is not very valuable, but they share the story of how this heirloom represents or is connected to someone they love. And so it's very special to them. And so this team is full of wood, woodworking experts and mechanical experts and furniture repair experts, a whole team of people. 
What's interesting is what they do. When you and I come across something broken, we tend to patch it up and hope for the best, right? When we come across something broken, we tend to patch it up and hope for the best. On this show, they take this broken heirloom or this family object and they completely deconstruct it. And then they reconstruct it to bring back the long lost glory that it had once had. It's a deconstruction and a reconstruction process. All of the ways that we resist sin that Isaiah lists in chapter five that we just looked at, all of the ways that we, resist, I mean, that we resist God's grace, all of the ways that we resist his grace are various versions of patch-up work. We're aware of the damage in our lives. We're aware of the brokenness. And so we resist God's grace and we move to versions of patch-up. Versions of just patching up the brokenness. God's grace doesn't engage in patch-up work. God's grace deconstructs our personal damage and then reconstructs us until the original vision of our creation is realized. That's how God works. His grace deconstructs and then reconstructs us. Question is, how does this happen? How exactly does this deconstruction and reconstruction process happen? We've looked at grace extended. We've looked at grace resisted. Now let's explore grace received because that's at the core of how this happens. Verses five to six in Isaiah five reveal the result of grace resisted. So when we resist God's grace, verses five and six explain the result. And now I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge and it shall be devoured. I will break down its wall and it shall be trampled down. I will make it a waste. It shall not be pruned or hoed and briars and thorns shall grow up. I will also command the clouds that they rain no rain upon it. This is judgment language. This is describing what happened when the Assyrians came in and invaded Jerusalem and tore the temple down and exiled God's people. Now the question is, how are we to understand that judgment that we see poured out on God's people, poured out on God's vineyard, poured out on Israel nearly 2,700 years ago? How do we understand that judgment? And how, does it, how is it relevant for today? Well, Jesus Christ used the imagery of the vineyard in his own teaching, in his earthly ministry. In fact, in John chapter 15, verse one, Jesus says, I am the true vine and my father is the vine dresser. 
God the Father was the vine dresser in Isaiah 5. His people, Israel, they were the vine. What Jesus says in John 15 is that he is the true vine, which communicates two very powerful truths. Number one, that Jesus as the true vine bore judgment for human failure. And number two, that Jesus as the true vine replaces human failure. When God poured out his judgment on his vineyard in Isaiah 5, the language that Isaiah uses there, that was a picture of the judgment that God would one day pour out on his true vine, which was Jesus. And Jesus on the cross bore God's intense judgment for our sin. So Jesus is the true vineyard, the true vine that received God's judgment. But then second, Jesus replaces human failure. He's the true vine, meaning he's the only person that has ever bared perfect and faithful fruit for God. He's the only one. Which means that if you and I have any hope of bearing fruit, it has to be connected to the true vine, to the one who has borne fruit for God. Jesus says in John 15, 5, I am the vine. You are the branches. Interesting there, right? Jesus is the vine. We're just the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit, for apart from me, you can do nothing. I said earlier that God's grace deconstructs us and then reconstructs us until the original vision of our creation is realized. That deconstruction and reconstruction process only happens through the person of Jesus. And that's why you can't bear fruit apart from Jesus. There's no fruit born apart from Christ. Now you can try. You can try to bear fruit apart from Christ. Let me give you an example of how this happens. Imagine in your backyard, you have an apple tree that's not bearing fruit. Several growing seasons and it has not produced any apples. So you come up with a great idea. You go down to the local farmer's market, you buy a bushel of nice, red, juicy apples, come back to your house, get the staple gun from your garage, go back into your backyard, and you staple these apples onto the tree. Then you sit back and you go, wow, look at my amazing fruit-producing apple tree. Of course, a week later, two weeks later, you've got rotten apples, that tree. What's your only hope for that tree to produce good fruit? Chop it down, dig it up from the roots, and plant a new apple tree. That's your only hope, is to chop it down, dig up the roots, and plant a new apple tree. Deconstruction means deconstructing the roots so that something new can be birthed and reconstructed. 
Now, let me explain how this happens. Let me give you an example. Imagine that you are struggling with lashing out in anger towards your spouse or a friend or towards your children. And you hate that. You hate that you lash out in anger. You hate that bad fruit. And you long for that bad fruit to to change into good fruit. You long to be patient and kind with your spouse, your friend, your children. And so you try really hard. When you you start to get angry, you, you, you think, I'm gonna be patient and kind. But as hard as you try to change this behavior into something positive, into something good, you find you can't sustain it. You just can't sustain it. You keep falling back into lashing out in anger. And you get depressed and you get frustrated at what's happening. Well, the reason you're frustrated is because you're stapling fruit. You don't like the anger, and so you're trying to staple patience and kindness onto the tree, so to speak. You can't bear fruit apart from Jesus. So the question is, how do you get to Jesus when you see bad fruit in your life that you don't want? How do you get to Jesus? Because he's the only way that you can bear fruit. The answer is you ask the why question. Because deconstruction means getting down to the roots. And bad fruit, not trying to rhyme, bad fruit always has a root. It always has a root to it. So you ask the why question, why do I lash out at anger? Why do I lash out in anger at my spouse? Why do I lash out in anger at my kids? Why do I lash out in anger at my friends or maybe your coworkers? Why do I lash out? Well, could be a couple reasons. One could be the person you're lashing out to, to is taking away your rest. Parents, maybe that's why you lash out at your kids. Could be that you lash out at someone because they're threatening your reputation. Could be you lash out in anger towards someone because they're ruining your plans. You're seeking rest. You're seeking some form of affirmation. You're seeking control apart from Jesus. And there's no bearing fruit apart from Jesus. So when you ask the why question, you get down to the root. And once you see that root, you turn from it, you turn to Jesus, now united to Christ, who becomes your rest, who becomes your affirmation, who becomes your control. Now you can respond with patience and with kindness. That's what it looks like to go through the deconstruction and reconstruction process. That's how you get to Jesus, so that united to Christ, you can actually begin to bear good fruit. And this process of deconstruction and reconstruction in your life is not a one-time thing. This is actually a daily, maybe even hourly process of what goes on. So back to the original question, why does God extend his grace to you? Why does God extend his grace to you? It's to change you. 
It's to, it's to change you, to transform you. And I'll go back to what I said about the forms that God's grace takes. Sometimes God, God's grace comes with sheer joy. Sometimes God, God's grace comes in the form of gut-wrenching pain. And it's in those moments where it's so important to remember that God's grace coming in that form is designed to change you. I said it a couple weeks ago. It's not designed to crush you. It's designed to change you, to transform you. So God's grace clearly is designed to change you. The question is, is it designed to make you comfortable? Is it designed to make you comfortable? That's a, that's a, a yes and no answer. God's grace is not intended to make you comfortable in your circumstances. God's grace is intended to make you comfortable in Jesus. Let me leave you with two questions to ponder. First, are you embracing the work of transformation that Jesus is doing in you by his grace? Or are you resisting it? And then the second question, are you seeking comfort in your circumstances or are you seeking comfort in Jesus? Are you abiding deeply with him? Let's pray. Father, you lavish your grace upon us in every way. You give us everything we need in our journey to new heavens and new earth. And yet we confess many times it's not what we want. But we confess that we believe it's what we need. And you, would you by your Holy Spirit tune our hearts to believe that deeply at a heart level, that you have given us everything that we need and that you are changing us and transforming us. You're not crushing us. Father, would we be a people that don't resist your grace? Would we be a people that receive it joyfully? And as we prepare to take communion, would we be a people that receive this gift of grace from you, this meal that represents and reminds us so clearly of your grace for us in Jesus Christ? Would you prepare our hearts now as we sing and prepare to enjoy this meal? In Christ's name we pray, amen.